welcome to today's edition of Take a Leap and Transform, a neo-diversity journey podcast where entrepreneurs, employees, business owners, and individuals can become aware and transform their mindset. Before we begin today's episode, I first want to welcome you all back by wishing you a fantastic Happy New Year. I hope you all had a festive season where you got all your wishes come true at the end of the year and renewed your purpose for 2023 with some new goals and dreams. As you have noticed, I've taken a bit of hiatus and I'm excited to come back with some new content that I've been generating. So with that said, let's leap into today's interview. Welcome back to Take a Leap and Transform, a neo-diversity journey. I'm your host, Joseph K. Muscat. Are you ready to take a leap with me? Part of the challenges with being neo-divergent is how executive function is so linked to our various abilities to process information and our productivity. What further adds to this is the frustration that we may not have been effectively been given the skills we need to develop and practice the various ways in how to manage our executive function. Now imagine if you are in your mid-30s, juggling your professional and family, and you get a late diagnosis that brings clarity, and yet you don't know where to start or to who to turn to to aid to building your new skills in development. Well, let me introduce you to my latest guest, Jeannie Love. Jeannie Love is an executive function coach equipped neo-divergent professionals with personalized tools to take control of their time and, and attention so they can get stuff done and achieve their goals. Jeannie has been trying to figure out how to stay focused and attentive, how to decrease procrastination, how to manage to-do lists, and generally how to get things done her entire adult life. She knows firsthand what it's like to be diagnosed, mess, and excited to be involved in the current neo-divergent movement. Jeannie brings 20 years of experience teaching high school students with ADHD and autism, as well as a master's in educational leadership to coaching individuals, as well as businesses and organization. Welcome, Jeannie. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I want to kick off from our ch- with our chat with your experience in the education system. And you tell us about your time assisting young students. Yes, I um, started in 2002 um, as sort of a, an aide for some students in a high school um, who sort of had some significant learning disabilities. And um, really enjoyed um, working with those students and really found a passion for helping kids navigate life. And as my career evolved, I moved into teaching and, and then into um, teaching students who had more mild learning disabilities and really found that I um, most connected with the students who had ADHD and autism. I really enjoyed helping them figure out how to manage life. And a lot of that was manage your time, um, prioritize break large assignments into smaller tasks and set goals and achieve those goals, how to advocate for, well, to figure out what you need and then how to advocate for that with the teachers and the other adults in your life. 
And so I just stayed and I continued to do that for a while. Um, that job took me to South America for a little while. And I, I had a student who has autism that I worked with there for a few years. And then um, he was sort of, his time was coming to an end overseas and we were ready to come home and it was COVID time of 2020. And so um, that was kind of when my teaching career ended and uh, an evolution and a path to coaching began. Okay, fantastic. Now you had mentioned in, in that, that you had helping them navigate and manage their time in their life. So yes. were they having particular difficulties in, in managing those areas and adapting it into, into the school structure or vice versa, the school structure not adapting to them? Well, I think it was... Um... I don't necessarily think the school structure at the high school level really is much adaptable. So you're expected to kind of figure it out. And so that was part of my job was to help these kids figure it out. So that many of them are involved in extracurricular activities and then just the, the intensity of each class and the high expectations for each class. And then on top of that, you maybe think more slowly or maybe you have um, a reading disability, and you are going to need some technology to support that, or, you know, maybe you don't understand, if, if maybe if you have autism, then you don't really understand what the expectations are, how do you know when a sort of an abstract writing assignment, how do you know when it's done, uh, how do you even get started, those kinds of things, and so it was really like at the high school level, it was really about just navigating the system and figuring out how to stay on top and get the things done. Okay, interesting. Now, you had mentioned as well, working with MILE students, but as well through our prep talk, you had mentioned that you were more cold towards more extreme cases. I think what I really uh, connected with, and, I, and when I look back at my own story, so you heard in the introduction that I've been trying to figure out how to manage my own time and attention my whole life. And as I see where I am now and follow the path all the way back to even college and high school. I really just, I wouldn't say that I gravitated to the extreme cases, but I gravitated definitely to the ones who needed the life coaching. Mm. And some of my students, even I think maybe were misdiagnosed as having a learning disability. And what they had was a family disability and just, but I, for me, it was navigating life, figuring out how to get the thing done. And that was where I connected with the kids to the point where I often, well, not often, but there would be times during an evaluation where um, the observer, the administrator would come in and say, okay, you're doing a great job connecting with kids, relating to kids, helping them solve the problems of life, but perhaps you're meeting, missing some reading instruction or something like that. So that uh, for me was, you know, just always where my passion has been. And even if you go all the way back to college, my first degree was as a physical therapist, and I found the most um, challenge and joy and interest working with patients who had had brain injuries like strokes. And so there, at the same time, you're also helping to figure out how can I rewire some neuropathways to help them relearn these skills of walking and climbing stairs and, and things like that. So I'm just sort of a a brain nerd that way. Fantastic. Uh, I like that you said you're a brain nerd. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I am. That's, yep, that's 
That's fantastic. What drew you towards the career to shift into coaching and why adults, not students? So when we returned in the in July of 2020, um, my husband, my husband and I agreed that he was going to work. He had been a stay-at-home dad while we were in South America. He was going to return to work, and I was going to be available in case our daughter needed to be homeschooled. And um, but we live in a pretty rural area, and she's in a pretty small classroom, and so actually she didn't really need to be homeschooled much. So um, then it was me trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my time, and I had picked up some tutoring for some kids who were homeschooled and. But my daughter, who is now nine, um, so at the time she was seven, uh, has um, some behavioral and emotional issues. And so for me, a goal was to be emotionally and physically available to her and for what she needed. And I just knew that going back to public education wasn't going to be the best thing for me to be the best parent that I could be. And so that kind of ruled that out. And we now know, and she has been diagnosed as having ADHD. And so, um, but at the time she wasn't. And so I was researching and trying to figure out, it was kind of um, a great moment for me to just, I was online studying what, what, what are my skills? What are people looking for? I you know, did some job interviews. And what I decided was that it wasn't going to be best for me to work with students because students are available after school and that's when I'm parenting. And so I had to let go of that idea. And even I'm in the mountains of the U.S. and even on the East Coast time, it just wasn't going to work. So then I just continued to research and I found that adults are either being diagnosed by a clinician or they're diagnosing themselves as having ADHD or autism. And I thought, okay, well, this is something that I, I know and have spent 20 years, you know, honing in my skills with high school students. And I wonder how that would translate with adults. And so I kind of put myself out there as a coach, an executive functioning coach. And it turns out that, yeah, people do want that help and that what I know is useful to them. And so I've been doing that for a while and really enjoying it and uh, love hearing about my clients' goals and their passions and how, you know, coaching them and how they can like start to make more progress on those things. You've hit on on a couple of things there that I actually want to touch upon later uh, in the interview, but let's uh, take a look here. What do you see as the particular differences when working with students and working with adults? The difference is that adults come to me and students are given to me. And so the difference is if you look at high school students, um, generally speaking, they're tired. They've been, you know, dealing with the school system, which is not set up for them. Um, And they're tired of just coping and managing and struggling. And it's just survival, really, by the time they get to high school. And so you're just, you're a a cheerleader, like, we're going to do this together. We're going to get through this together. Adults come to me because they're ready to take control of their lives. And so it's much more active. And they're much 
more open and ready to work on the strategies that I have for them. They also come with a very clear vision of what they want, which is very individualized. It's not just surviving high school, but they have professional and personal goals. And so for me, that's really fun to get to be a part of their lives and to, you know, share strategies that can, that can get them there. So, um, yeah, they're much more motivated, much more active, much more ready to move forward than some poor, tired high school kids. Well, that's really interesting in, in the aspect that the students, you're, they're trying to navigate and, and get through high yeah. school, right? Um, and they're not, to a certain extent, they have a, a vision of graduating and entering their dream career. But at, even though that's the end goal, that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to survive the education system. And, and as you pointed out, survive an education system that, frankly, is not willing to adapt to them. They want them to adapt to the education system. So more, more not inclusion, more, what's the word I'm looking for? More integration. That's the word I'm looking for uh, versus yes. uh, inclusion. Yes. And when I say that I knew that I wouldn't have the energy from public education, it has nothing to do with the students. It's about the other stuff. So managing the other teachers involved in their lives and the other pressures, those are the things that just, and then, um, you know, in the U.S., the mounds of paperwork uh, that take you away from what you really want to do is just to hang out with kids. Mm -hmm. And so it, me leaving public education and, and being tired has, has absolutely nothing to do with students. I still love high school kids, but it's the other stuff that becomes exhausting. Well, that's, that's a, that takes us a little bit into, in a different direction. So if you don't mind, I, I want to kind of go there. You mentioned the, the managing, working with and managing teachers and the amount of paperwork, the, the, the bureaucracy of it, frankly. How, how is that in regards to neodivergent students? I mean, you know, because you mentioned that the students, you, you, you enjoy working with students, you, you want to help the students. But then there's all of this bureaucracy that interferes. Does it interfere with, with, with you being able to coach and guide students and give them the attention that they need? Yeah, I think so. I think they're not getting the best because um, you're being pulled. I mean, when they talk about like, if we just go with the paperwork side of things and the accountability, the legal accountability from that side, I mean, if you want to talk about dotting every I and crossing every T, it's just, it's, it's really insane and a burden. And I'm not, it's not set up to really support them. It's, it's a mess. So there's that. And then there's, you know, what the kids need to learn. What, what are their goals? What are their priorities? Isn't the goal of education. I have a lot of opinions about education. Um, I also have a master's degree in educational leadership. So I have um, been involved in education from so many angles and for such a long time that I have 
actually some very strong opinion. But um, yeah, so the, the, the expectation is, you know, get this math done, get this history done, get this speech written, get this. And I we're, we're missing, like, what do they really need? What are their goals? And how, what do they, you know, I have questions about graduation requirements. Like, is that, I understand the purpose of graduation requirements to expose kids to so many things. But if you um, are a neurodivergent person and you've got this very specific path, it are all those requirements the best thing for that student. I think there's a lot that could be revisited in education. And uh, I'm unfortunately, I'm just not the person to tackle that right now. Understandable. And I don't have your educational credentials or experience, but I equally have a lot of opinions about the education <laughs> system. Okay, so there's a lot of paperwork. The education system really doesn't take into account the neo-divergent student. And are the requirements, as you stated, really the best way or the best requirements for that for that particular student? And obviously, they, of course, this opens the Pandora box of what are you saying? Are you saying that we need to lower the requirements, give them a pass? And of course, that's not what you're saying. What you're really saying is, is why are we not focusing on where they're strong and prov providing support? and where they're needed. And those requirements can be changed, but still have a higher le level that will help them get to where they need to go and be at the same playing field. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think you nailed it. Like, what are their strengths? We spent so much time focusing on what are their weaknesses and how are we going to, you know, deal with that, really? in that way, um, as opposed to like, these are their strengths. Let's just push as hard as we can on that. And like, what does reading look like in, if they continue on this path? What does math look like? What are, what are their math needs if you continue on this path? What are their, you know, language arts needs if they continue on this path? And so then you get into like project-based learning, which I think is something that's very interesting to discuss, which is where you have this area of interest and then the all of that is built into uh, what they're motivated and mm. interested to study. And then they get to like take your your passion and your motivation to the next level and see where you they can go with that. Interesting. That's an interesting point. The the excuse the pronunciation, the Haji learning, Haji based learning. Oh no. Project. Oh, project-based. Uh, project-based learning, which is where you would, um, okay, I'll give, an, I'll give you an example. My daughter um, is sort of interested in architecture and design. And so they had um, a project where she had to, she's in fourth grade, so they had to design a house and you had to put the rooms in and you had to, you know, do the multiplication of the blocks. So it's this many blocks long, this room is this many blocks wide and you have to do the multiplication. So, and she ended up building this elaborate four story house that had like a parkour room and a movie room and, and it was fun. So could you take this, she's excited to do this project. She has ADHD. It's very hard for her to focus on something that isn't incredibly motivating to her, but she saw this all the way through. So let's go with that. Let's research some architects and read about architects. Let's write about architecture somewhere in there. I'm sure there's science that we can incorporate as well. And so that's more of the project-based learning. She is learning 
all of the core subjects around this area that is um, motivating to her. And it's very individualized for each kid. Okay, that's very interesting. So what you're basically saying is on the, on the project-based learning is you're customizing a curriculum for that child based on what is motivating them. And then in that customization, you're not, A, you're, cost, you're, you're customizing, customizing the material that they would need based on what's motivating them, but at the same time, co incorporating all the other important uh, educational modules into that project that will further motivate them. Like, so you're kind of like, you're putting little cookie crumbs uh, yes. in, in, in regards to those subject matters that will link to their interests. Absolutely. And I think the immediate response to this would be, how can I possibly create a customized curriculum for every student in my class? Mm -hmm. And I think it doesn't have to be that hard. Mm. Um, I think that there, well, I know that there are uh, courses out there on how to do that um, by, you know, prestigious universities. And so it's like any change, it would be just like earth shattering in the beginning and there's growing pains to it. But I don't think like she would be during, you know, language arts piece, she would be researching an architect and somebody else might be researching a, you know, um, maybe they're very interested in the military. So mm. maybe they would be researching an important historical military figure or just, it could be anything. And it's a shift in how we do things. It feels, I don't know. I, 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 I can't really imagine what, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like, but I can only speculate on what somebody's experience to jump into this will be. But there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's research out there on it. You could right. do it. People are, schools are doing it. That's interesting. That's, that's quite fascinating. You know, and I, and I, I agree with you that if you think outside the box, you'll be able to incorporate this into the classroom um, that would be more successful to students and particularly neurodivergent students. So how, you know, because you mentioned it and you, you mentioned that your daughter is going through that. So this is one particular project. How receptive have you found the education system in that regards to incorporating project-based learning? Well, I haven't, I haven't gone anywhere with that because mm. I think from my experience of being in education, I think it's a, we could never possibly do that kind of situation. I, as I was reevaluating where my career was going and what I was planning to do, I mean, at that time I was actually enrolled in a project-based learning class um, to learn more about how to implement it myself. And I had to let go of that because when I thought about what my priorities were to my family and to my daughter, I just knew that taking on something this big wasn't, wasn't the best use of my energy at the time. So I really have not followed it any further Okay, no, no than my own personal ruminations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that. Um, I'd be curious to find out though, but you said that, 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 you know, certain aspects of the education system is starting to incorporate it. Um, 
we're just curious to find out how receptive that is in regards to on a wider scale. So mm. uh, my last question on that then is you had mentioned in regards to is the curriculum in regards to graduation, the, pro the appropriate curriculum or requirement, should I say, for a neodiverged student. Can you give an example? Yes, I can. I worked with a student who um, was very, I don't know exactly how you describe this, but he was very like IT oriented. So he could build a computer from scratch. He was constantly tinkering, like he built himself a new special keyboard. Just knew that he was gonna go into like cybersecurity, something like that. Um, his brain just takes him that direction. His passions take him in that direction. The way he spends his time takes him in that direction. And so then to, uh, great, and he's going to excel. I mean, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's going to do so well in this. So then to watch him just struggle and really just hate himself over trying to do deep, literature analysis at a senior level, I just, I question like, what are we doing to him? Hmm. I don't know that that, I mean, I think for someone who's going to go to a, a university and, and it needs to be exposed to a wide variety of, of um, curriculums, fantastic. But for him, I just don't know that that was worth what it did to his, you know, self-esteem, his feelings about school. I don't know that it, I don't think it's worth it. Um, hmm. So that's an example of someone who probably could have benefited from a team really evaluating what was necessary for him to graduate high school. Right, right. Because it, again, it's, it's trying to build that well-rounded student and give them that exposure. But then of course, does that does a student really require all that exposure, especially if they're that's an area where they're struggling in, but they're being prevented from graduating when they're excelling in another area? Mm. Or looking at education, you know, post-high school education and just how awful high school was. So why would we even consider going on to more education? And so, you know, just kind of sucking, sucking that out of him. Um, however, he did go to work for a cybersecurity, um, a small cybersecurity company and did incredibly well, so well that he actually left that job to go to um, a, a technical school where he can continue to learn more about that. So that's, you know, that's really great for him. It is, it is, and that's a, a, a good way to end it. Uh, yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's producing a more productive environment where he will want to con continue his education. And from, from that job led into him wanting to do that. A different experience, that's a, a different, more positive experience than what the education system had provided him. And it's interesting, kind of the segue a little bit, uh, yeah. Dr. Dr. Uh, Temple Gaydin yep. has recently just read an article, recently came off uh, a book tour, uh, but during her book tour, she was arguing in her book and in this particular interview that the education system is killing visual learners. And re 
And the reason being is that we're taking away all the hands-on technical educational requirements that a lot of neurodivergent students tend to thrive in. Um, and that's being taken away from them because it's not being provided in the education system. And she's saying it's 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 time to, to call to recall that back in because a lot of neurodivergent talent is struggling to in the education system because they're not having that as an alternative resource. I had a student who was incredibly gifted with music. He was an incredible musician. And um, yeah, I mean, he had to have that mm. in order to be his best self because otherwise the rest of school was really taking away his self-esteem. And so this goes into, you know, so many of my adult clients now carry the baggage mm. from struggling so much in high school um, to adult life, which I found. And so they um, have some self-esteem issues that is part of the work that we sometimes often have to do together. Mm -hmm. So that brings us then coming back to, to the main topic then, because you mentioned the self-diagnosis and that's really an interesting phenomenal that's happening. Um, so with working adults who are self-diagnosed rather than getting a medical one, what are your thoughts on why that's occurring? I would expect that it is uh, a function of time, you know, like if you can get online and there's a checklist and there are a lot of resources available now for you to kind of, or, or do a, a, an assessment to say, yeah, I think I do have autism. I think I do have ADHD. I don't know that, uh, that an official diagnosis I mean, I think it does provide some sense of, okay, it's better now I understand who I am, some closure on some, you know, previous decisions or struggles in your life. But I think a lot of people are just like, okay, that's probably me. And now let's figure out what that means. And mm -hmm. so I don't know that there's a strong reason to get a diagnosis. Okay. So then are you finding from your experience that these self-diagnosed individuals are correct and are facing the challenges where they need to develop new perspectives and skills to assist, to assist in their coping? Yeah. So an example would be that I had a woman who came to me and she said, I think I'm autistic. And um, so I, you know, I just clarified for her, I am not in a, I'm not qualified to you know, to officially diagnose you, but the more time we spent together, the more she told me about how her brain worked, the more I said, you have a lot of things in common with the other autistic people that I have worked with. And so for her, then there was a lot of acceptance. Um, she's grateful for understanding who she is and is ready to move forward with her life, but then also grieving for all the time that she lost. Mm -hmm. um, not understanding who she was and being able to take action. And, um, I know there was more to your question, but maybe you can ask it because sure. I so, lost myself in my story. Not a problem. So you've answered the first part where, where they've gotten the diagnosis and with working with you, you're finding that, that 
the the self-diagnosis seems to be quite accurate. Uh, and then yes. this the second part of the question is, are they finding that the the skills that they're lacking is and that you're helping them develop is aiding them to be able to cope? Yeah. Yes. And I would say um, with my clients who have quote unquote ADHD, I'm not sure that all of them technically would. That one specifically too, because of our very distracted time that we are in um, with so much going on and constant reminders from our phone of the things that are going on. So I'm not sure that all of my clients um, would technically have ADHD, but the strategies do help. And so, you know, generally they come to me because they feel like they don't have control of their time and they don't feel like they have control of their attention. And so it's so easy to just go on autopilot through the day, going from one problem to the next problem, one email to the Slack message, to the next reminder, to the text from your spouse or whatever. And you can do that, but then it's very hard to um, make progress on your, on your goals, whether they're professional or personal goals. And so we just developed some strategies um, on how to rein that in. And there are like some very specific strategies that I coach them on, but then also uh, a huge part of what I do, both in controlling your time and attention, but then also coping maybe with some self-esteem or imposter syndrome issues is I incorporate mindfulness as part of my coaching practice. And so mindfulness can help you with your attention. It can help you with your focus. It can help you with being okay with your struggles, what you have struggled with in the past and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I mean, had initial meeting with a, a client today and, you know, just here's a couple of things for you to try. And, you know, she was very excited to go to leave and to try them. So. There's a couple of things there. The aspect of that we live in a very distracted world. There's no doubt about that. It's also interesting the aspect as well is, you know, from my from my experience with interacting with, with neodivergence and with my own experience is this feel of, as you put it, loss. There's so many years I have been lost because of not having this understanding earlier in life not having the skills taught to us earlier. And I think that's an important yeah. aspect because we fail to realize that these are skill sets that haven't either A, been effectively taught to us or not taught to us at all, especially when it comes to being a neo-divergent individual. Yeah. And I think you can go then back to the education system that we we're talking about earlier, which just assumes that you're going to learn these life skills that just assumes that you'll learn how to take notes, that just assumes that you will learn how to regulate your emotions. I'm very excited um, in the US that there's this social emotional learning sort of curriculum that many schools are adopting and adding as part of how they teach and what they teach. Um, because in the past, it was just an assumption that you would be able to just complete this project without having to teach how, you know, how to break it down into steps or whatever. 
And so then, so the life skills, the problem solving, the managing your attention, the managing your emotions, the procrastination, people who have executive functioning issues sometimes just can't even figure out how to get started. Or you know the you have really great vision for what the end is going to look like, but the steps to get there, it's hard to visualize them all. And so those abstract thinking skills aren't taught as much as how to learn how to read, how to learn how to do math. I say for my daughter, you know, my example is she has a, a lot of emotional regulation problems. And it's like if a student, I mean, we very explicitly teach reading now to children who are dyslexic. And so if they can't read, we teach them how to read. If they don't know how to behave, we don't teach them how to behave. We just tell them to behave. And that's where my daughter doesn't know how because she's a good kid who wants to do well. She just doesn't know how to teach those things. Yeah, it's very fair enough point. Um, there's also the aspect of concentration. We tell kids to concentrate, but we don't teach them how to concentrate. And then, of course, we fail to realize in the aspect of respecting how they concentrate versus how we want them to concentrate. And then, of course, where 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 they decide where they want to put their intention, right? So we look at ADHD. If they're bored at something that doesn't motivate them, they're not going to they're not going to do that versus something that, that does motivate them, that does interest them. And we don't encourage that. We expect them to come back to what, what is boring them. So we're not adapting again to how that person or that student you know, wants to concentrate and where they want to put their, their, their focus. And it's also funny in the aspect as well, the, you mentioned the assumption it's, it's the same thing happening, a mid-30s, mid-40s individual who comes to the conclusion they need to get a diagnosis, they get a diagnosis, or, or even prior to getting a diagnosis, they're told, we can give you a diagnosis, but if you're looking for after support, we don't provide that. So again, it's that assumption that you'll be able to figure it out on your own, which isn't the case, because if that was the case, someone like you wouldn't be needed. Right, and they would have figured it out a long time ago, but... <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's where, and you know, that's where I've learned coaching comes in is you figure out, you know, what is it that you, I equate it to kind of like, you know, taking a college class, like you're, you are getting someone who knows something and has experience with this area where you're struggling with. And so why not get some help? So I'm, I'm really curious, you know, from, from the people you have coached, what are the various professions they are in? And you mentioned earlier in regards to their self-esteem and self-image. So how is that? I have clients who work in pretty much everything, social working in schools, um, IT. Some of them are entrepreneurs, their own business owners. So in fact, I would say almost half of them have their own businesses. So that's kind of interesting too, for whatever reason. And I can't necessarily speculate, but, um, or I could speculate, but that, I don't know if that would be helpful. So yeah, they're in all sorts of careers and they do carry some self-esteem baggage from just always having not having it together. You know, I was always the one, well, not me, but this is something that they might say, like, I'm always late. I'm always can't, 
Um, I'm always behind. I can't ever get all the things done. Um, everybody else has it together and I'm, you know, the one struggling. And of course, I think rationally, we all know that nobody has it together. But, you know, we all know if you look back on those school years, that whatever we had to deal with carries over for a pretty long time. Those are some pretty impressionable years. I had a conversation with a client who I don't know exactly what he does, but it's some sort of IT support and he had gotten a new job. And, you know, I was telling him, I was like, well, that's, you know, that's great. You know, you are in an industry where you pretty much can call the shots. Like you are, you're, you are in such high demand that that's amazing. I'm so excited that you are in this position. And he was kind of blown away. Like his self-esteem was pretty low. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But didn't even understand the value that he has in being skilled in this area that is in such high need that he could leave that job and find another one tomorrow that pays more. This is, you know, what's kind of heartbreaking for some of my clients. Yeah, that's quite understandable. I know you've kind of mentioned and touched upon it earlier. So let's go a little bit more in uh, some detail. What are the skills these adults are having difficulty with? And what do they need to develop? Executive functioning skills include things like getting started if the project seems overwhelming, uh, which also kind of includes procrastination, organization, and sort of that short-term active memory can be a challenge. Time management is a part of that. Um, handling stress and emotional regulation. So being able to solve problems and make decisions uh, under emotional stress or pressure. Those are all executive functioning skills. Um, focus and attention for sustained periods of time. Uh, seeing projects all the way through to completion, those are all kind of executive functioning skills. Right, and right. we, when I start working with clients, we start small, like let's just take control of your day. Let's take control of your week. Let's find chunks of time where you can begin to work on the things that you might be missing. Some of them it's exercise. Some of them it's a hobby. It might be going to sleep at a regular time or eating well. What does it look like to fit all those parts um, into your daily and weekly schedule? So we start with strategies for that. And as we go along, things will fall apart as they always will. And so then we have some strategies for resetting and coming back. And mindfulness comes into that a lot of letting go of what has just happened and you know, sort of hitting the reset button. So we do that. Um, then also some strategies for like sustained attention and focus, um, but also how to keep going when it's a task that's incredibly difficult for you, unmotivating. I'll give you an example. For me, it's writing. I don't enjoy writing. Um, and so for me, it's like, just the tiniest chunk, like I'm going to sit here, I'm going to write for 17 minutes. I'll pick some random number often, which kind of triggers my brain. And then how to take a short break and then come back for 17 more minutes. 
um, those kinds of things. Managing to-do lists, those can, that's a, another thing that is part of what my clients are dealing with. So many thoughts. Uh, oh, they call it, and I would too, call it noise going around in your brain, just so many thoughts and ideas and how to just kind of quiet the noise in your brain. Um, those are some of the, yeah, those are some of the things that I provide strategies for, for my clients. Well, thank you for that. And I'm curious, the, you mentioned the handling stress and emotional regulation. Yes. How is that affecting a neodivergent individual? I think that um, there, for example, you're often, maybe your to-do list is just so overwhelming and you're not making progress on it. And so that can create like a stress response, which might be avoidance or it might be kind of a panicking kind of thing. Um, so that would be one example. And this is where mindfulness then comes in. How do we slow down, narrow our, our focus on what needs to be done right now? What's the next thing that needs to be done? So how to quiet the noise and all the chaos that's going on in your brain, bring yourself back to right here, right now, what's the thing that needs to be done? Um, it might be when you're feeling overwhelmed um, by really anything in life. Uh, and so how do you handle that stress? And I do a lot with mindfulness. <laughs> so those are, and we practice it in a lot of ways. And so just bringing you back to the present, I'm right here, I'm right now, this is the thing that's happening. I can let all that noise, all that stress, all that chaos go because all there is is just this thing that is happening right now. Um, so those are some examples of emotional regulation and how I coach on that. And then once you, once you go through the coaching practices with your clients, and you provide these strategies. You know, we had mentioned the self-esteem. How is their self-esteem after they start developing these skills and you start seeing the results of these, these new skill sets? Yeah, they definitely feel better. They can see accomplishment. They can see that they have control over the things that are holding them back, whether it's time, whether it's focus, whether it's being able to make progress on your long-term goals. So we take all that and we just break it down into small pieces. And it's, you know, we, we meet weekly in the beginning, uh, maybe even twice a week, like one would be a coaching session. And then one might be like a, a monitoring of your calendar and your schedule. And then they start to take control of that. And then we need to meet less often. So maybe it's twice a month um, for the one-on-one -on -one sessions, but then we can keep the weekly calendar check-ins if that's really helpful to you. But at the same time, we're taking these like long-term projects and, and together we're figuring out what are the pieces that we can start to break it into, set our own goals, meet those goals, or adjust if something has come up and we couldn't meet that goal. And then you can just kind of see that you're making progress on what's important to you. And then, then you feel like you're in control. And so that feels really good. This has been a very... Janine, an engaging conversation. And I want to end off with how can people reach out to you? I have a website. It's genielove.coach. 
and I'll spell it for you. It's G-E-N-I-E-L-O-V-E.coach. And you can also email me if you want, genie at genielove.coach. And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. Well, thank you, Jeannie, for being an amazing guest and sharing your experience <laughs> and how you are supporting the neodivergent community. I will put her details in the show notes. I also want to thank you, my continued listeners, for your amazing support of this podcast. I want to share with you a new program that I put together to bring awareness to up-level the skills of employers and management. The workshop aids in building more inclusive environments in the workplace and in developing the skills of management to be more engaging with their teams. Reach out to me on my website to learn more about this amazing program. I also encourage you to continue to support this podcast so I can bring you more amazing content. You can do so by visiting my Patreon page where you can connect with me in directly in several options. Until next time, take a leap and transform.